welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I'm a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. We have come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from a short story vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. In this podcast, we're discussing the short story Missing Out by the Sudanese-born writer Leila Abulela. It was first published in Granta on July 12, 2010. Missing Out is a story about a young Sudanese man, Majdi, who travels to London to study for his PhD. While he's there, he marries a Sudanese woman called Samra, and the story is really about the toll taken on their relationship by the cultural shift. Sonia, shall we start with one of your questions? I'd really like to know if the right length for a short story is not a word more or less than necessary, why is this story this length? It's quite long, it's about 6,000 words. The pace is relatively gentle and the narration maintains something of a polite distance. The market, such as there is for short stories, primarily competitions and literary magazines, tends to push for stories of about 3,000 words. So what do you think would be lost if this story was shorter? Well, it's quite a complex story, isn't it? With two settings and cultures, the political context and flashbacks. And that seems to affect the form as well as the length. It's very rich. Is the story's form unusual for a contemporary short story? Might it be unusual in starting with context and setting? The story consistently presents multiple perspectives and it manages to keep us shifting from cartoon and London from beginning to end either transporting through changes of location or by presenting the distance traveled by the character's mind and heart, revealing the homes they hold within, which they revisit or are revisited by. We're a long way from this idea that writers sometimes borrow from classical theater and Aristotle about the unities of action, time and place. True, and there are several flashbacks as well, but I think there is unity in that the story builds to a single climax and the complications of form possibly reveal the complex context behind the breakup of the relationship. I felt this coherence too. One of my other questions was who's narrating? The narrator seems to be telling the story from a distance, enabling us to slip from Majdi's letter writing down the phone to his mother in Khartoum and back to Majdi's student hall through the eyes and ears of passing students. So several different perspectives just in the first paragraph. And sometimes I seem to hear a kindly but ironic smile in the narrating voice, which describes Majdi's mother as that woman and comments on Samra's confirmation of Majdi's brilliance, saying he knew he was all along. I was tempted to interpret this as the voice of the writer. Is that fair? I mean, I felt the irony when the narrator says it is pointless to resist fate, apparently from Majdi's perspective, although Majdi is the scientific and pragmatic one. So, yes, it's the creation of a narrative voice that weaves between cultures and perspectives. There's an interesting comment about polyphony in Tessa Hadley's work in an article about her and the complex use of voice that makes it hard to establish precisely whose voice we're hearing. Vice was making this comment with reference to class, but maybe there's always likely to be an ambiguity of narratorial position and voice whenever a story shifts between social and cultural designations. 
It's really interesting to compare this with the negotiation of class boundaries. I saw this story more in terms of cultural boundaries and the difficulty presented by living one's faith when one is a member of a minority faith. But this comparison with class seems very pertinent. I guess because culture is so complex and multifaceted, most people are in constant negotiation with boundaries. I even felt negotiation between my own boundaries and preconceptions and this story to some extent. A slight mismatch with the view of London presented by Majdi and my own view. He sees England as chipping away at his faith and at all faith, whereas I'm often astonished by what a religious country England is. I see no real tradition of secularism there, for example. It's great to have this friction. It's kind of world expanding. I think the point about faith is really important and I want to return to it. But is there more to say about the narration here while we're on this topic? But I did wonder who the narrator is telling this story to. Well, that's a great question. And it's probably always a question for people writing about the tension between two cultures. You can compare it to working class writers who are always telling their stories to middle class readers, for instance. And in one interview, Abu Leila says the norm for European literature is Eurocentric, white and Christian. She says she does have to ask herself how much her reader knows about Islam, how much needs to be explained. And that suggests to me that she is writing for both cultures with an awareness that the Christian one may dominate. Yeah, bothness emerged for me too. Some of the words and references seemed intended to speak to insiders of Sudanese and Muslim culture, like the simile about breaking a fast. And some seemed more intended to speak to outsiders like me, such as the simile comparing Samra to a holidaymaker or explaining that Majdi is the first man she's known. Uh, I noticed also that italic was used for some of the um, so-called foreign words, but not for the honorific ustaz. Uh, increasingly, style guides prescribe non-italic for non-English words used mainly in English texts, uh, supposedly as a more inclusive and multilingual approach. And through publication by Ada, I had the experience of my French words being non-italicized, and it felt wonderful to have both languages rubbing along together as they do in my private life. But when I tried to adopt this approach in my creative writing, I came upon a word that existed in both French and English, um, which I wanted to be understood in the French sense. So I fell back on italic. And it highlighted for me how the text is both a policed space where writer and editor are border control, but also a shared space where writer and editor are reception committee welcoming readers and kindly signposting. But perhaps it's best to let the reader negotiate the text without border control or welcome committee. That's such an interesting idea, since the way a word appears on the page so clearly signposts how we read it politically and culturally. What is the norm here in this story? Is there one? Well, within this story, italic is mostly used for non-English words, but it was published in 2010. So that may reflect the style guide enforced by that magazine at that time. It was published for an English audience at that time. Yeah. So I'm not sure what conclusions we could draw from that. Well, it seems to me to signify an English norm. Abulela lives in Scotland, and that reminded me that a similar problem is faced by Scottish writers such as Lewis Grassic Gibbon, James Kelman or Tom Leonard when they present a Scottish vernacular in English. This is seen as a political issue and each writer negotiates it in a different way. 
sometimes it seems to me that there's not so much English as English is. Yes. Uh, in my professional life, I work in American English and British English is for my literary life only. And I do think there's a political aspect to this, as you say. The market demand uh, reflects or is caused by America's current political or economic might. And for the Scottish writers you mentioned, there may be a comparable relationship with English English. So one language in some way dominates the other. Uh, Abu Leila writes in English, not Arabic, and this perhaps also relates to the perceived worth of some languages over others. Absolutely. And I'm sure this is an ongoing negotiation for her and for other African writers. Are there other particular features of Abu Leila's style? I mean, I notice myself that there are long compound additive sentences, but very clear, they're not misleading in any way or confused. The shifts in perspective are often used to convey the cultural gap. She, in her own way, does not understand what he was saying, for instance. The second paragraph conveys beautifully the difference in culture. The third paragraph shifts again. The fifth paragraph gives a sense of the political backdrop. So it's a really condensed style, and Abulela conveys a lot via metonymy in the sense that the characters are representative of certain stances and ideologies, even while being distinct in themselves. I think metonymy is one way in which short stories reach out to something larger than their explicit content. They often stand in metonymic relation to the realities they portray, even in realist stories like this one, where each character represents a much larger and older narrative about culture and gender. And what about the question of gender? Do the women appear as conservative guardians of culture? The mother is a motivational force, ambitious, determined, and she has independent means, but at the same time, she's very traditional. She's shocked at the end that Marjorie might not return to Khartoum and wants to know how he could leave her all alone in her old age. Summer is more interesting in that her personality shifts from active, rebellious and social to the kind of passive torpor of depression. It's as if all agency leaves her in London, whereas in cartoon, Majdi is the conservative one. In London, he's more progressive, quick to see the opportunities, more ambitious and more able to adapt to Western culture. Gender questions arose for me too. I loved how the title played with these different perspectives, how each person has their stakes and the threat of missing out. I was interested in the fact that the title is Missing Out, not Five Pegs, for instance, and we end with a sense of Majdi's exclusion. London held something that could never be his, that was impossible to aspire to. There's also a definite sense that he's missed out on what his wife had to offer. Or do you feel that they both missed out? I love the way Abulela revealed the advantages and costs of Majdi's move for each character. Because the mother wants her son to succeed, but she fears missing out on his presence and company. Samra wants a bridegroom in foreign parts, but she misses out on friends, family, and an environment in which she can more freely live her faith. And Majdi, though most privileged in some ways, seems always to be missing out, both at home in Khartoum, where he feels he cannot fulfill his potential, and in London, where he will always be an outsider. Each character seems caught in this complex reckoning, Majdi often seemed to be reckoning in terms of money and time. His wife is described as cheap and hassle-free, and praying is seen as inconvenient, even though his time is more blessed as a result. I think complex reckoning is a great term for what's going on here. 
And you point out that there are many shifts in perspective, but it seems to me that we see events mainly from Majdi's point of view. Why do you think this is? It's, it's hard to say, but I guess in many cultures, a hero is traditionally male with, with females appearing to help the hero on his way. In this story, we do get several female perspectives and sometimes a sense of Majdi's exclusion from the women's world. And Majdi's wife, Samra, knows an anecdote about Majdi's mother having difficulty getting home, which she relates to him, almost as if she spends more time chatting with the mother than he does. Mm -hmm. And before marriage, Majdi witnesses a scene between Samra and her friend who fled tear gas after a protest. And we see both the intimacy she shares with her friend and Majdi's distance from them. Uh, I really admired the way Abu Leila showed the privileges and constraints of each character. And Majdi benefits from his mother's adoration of her brilliant son, and Samra adopts a similar role, finding him equally brilliant. And both mother and wife do what they can to engineer a comfortable existence for Majdi, so he can shine in his studies and career. And the women seem to have no such opportunity. The mother is described as having independent means, but she seems to invest what she has in her son, offering to pay for his ticket home, for example. And Samra evolves from cousin of, daughter of, to wife of. And Majdi talks of her in terms of being yielding, proper, respectful. So her roles are quite delimited. Uh, we glimpse her inner world sometimes. For example, when we hear that she sways at the beginning of married life between discomfort and pleasure, or when she sees London as exotic or alien. But her perspectives do seem limited, except where her faith is concerned, perhaps. Uh, she seems to find a sort of personal freedom there. But uh, even her fantasy life seems borrowed from a romance story. She teases her husband in her fantasy of him in Khartoum in a way that flatters his ego and places him in a scenario where he remains at the centre of proceedings. But we also see how integrated into her country she is. And she's politically active and has a tight network of female friends and neighbours. Uh, in comparison, Majdi has only the expectations of these women and his work. He seems terribly lonely, but unable to acknowledge, let alone express this. Though he's thrilled by the opportunities that London presents, as you say, he comes to realise that he will always be an outsider. Yeah, I mean, it's as if the cultural differences are played out in a gendered context rather than a specifically political or generational one, for instance. Although we do get a strong sense of the Sudan and the political context. I looked up Mahmoud Mohamed Taha, for instance, whose execution features in this story. He was actually executed for apostasy. And I realized that he was quite progressive in terms of breaking with the rule of restricting participation in Sufi rituals to men. He thought women should be able to participate in prayers and religious rituals and to compose hymns and poems. One of the interesting things to me is that the West is not presented as a place of opportunity for Samra, at least, who thrives more in her own culture. But is this also because of Majdi and the gendered relationship? At one point, he thinks it was good that she was a simple cartoon girl, neither demanding nor materialistic. Also, he wanted her to enjoy lively, civilised London. He wanted her to be grateful to him for rescuing her from the backwardness of cartoon. Yeah, who is looking and at what is a really tricky thing, isn't it? I didn't see the story so much in terms of a east-west division. Uh, I'm not sure cultures can be so easily booked up. The characters seem to me quite middle class, educated. I imagined Sudanese Arab rather than Black African, but that might be something I brought to the story and not what the story gave. And the binary itself might be suspect. Good point, yeah. 
it seems to me that all stories leave someone out. And I read that reference to the little girls at the beginning uh, begging as something of a nod to this. Abu Leila presents Majdi's mother being quite vicious to some little girls who were begging. And this seemed at once to say that this is not the story of these little girls, among others perhaps, but also at that point to be acknowledging that. It seemed to acknowledge its own limits in terms of perspective, even though this was so very rich in this respect. It is rich. And I think you're right. The story does point to the limitations of what we can know and the limitations of each character and gender. Majdi both does and does not want freedom of expression for his wife. He doesn't want her to bring this backwardness with her in terms of wearing her scarf, although he's not quite comfortable either with the idea of her wearing tight jeans or smoking like some more westernized Sudanese women do. And he's the one who suggests the word processing course for her, but because then she could type his thesis for him. These touches are lightly done with that irony that you pointed out earlier. Majdi isn't a monster, but he has an internal vision of how he would like his wife to be, which she cannot fulfil. Yeah, dynamics of belonging and exclusion play out at the level of individuals and personal relationships, or, or perhaps personality and personal interests. Majdi is so thrilled by his mathematical advances that he can't empathise with Samra's distress. And when breaking the news to his mother that he wishes to pursue his career in the UK, he sees her response as melodramatic. I think that is at the heart of the complexity of this story, that these large dynamics are played out at the individual and intimate level. And just at the level of this discussion, it's what makes separating out the individual points quite difficult because they are also interrelated, aren't they? The whole gender, the setting, the cultural thing. And we see this reflected in the language. We have Samra's visionary passage about how their life will be in Khartoum and Majdi's different vision, which is about drainage and gutters. Her vision becomes more poetic, his pragmatic and technical, and the different registers of language reflect this. I do admire the fact that Abu Leila gives equal weight to these separate visions. This goes back to your point about what might be lost if the story was shorter. But in both, of course, there's a sense of deferral. Both these characters are waiting to be or to become. That juxtaposition of the two visions is, is so neat and understated, isn't it? And both seem to me so sympathetic and understandable. There are many references to what's lacking in cartoon, but it's also as if the technical failures and the poverty itself can lead to beauty and generosity and feeling and um, the moment of his kiss and the lorry driver who gives Majdi's mother a lift home. Yeah, that was a beautiful scene, wasn't it? Yeah, Samra is homesick and, and romanticises Sudan, inventing a daydream that Majdi considers inaccurate. Yes, and he begins to think of her homesickness as perverse, that's the word used. It does seem as though homesickness is a recurrent theme in Abu Leila's work. I read another quote from her um, in an interview. My fascination with the idea of home and my intense homesickness led me to accept the Sufi concept of the soul having a spiritual homeland that's different from that of the physical body. Our bodies are at home on earth, but our spiritual homeland is the heavens. The yearning that the soul feels is a yearning for its true home and an alienation from the physical trap of the body and the earth it belongs to. And I thought that was interesting because the homesickness and the faith are strongly linked in this story. 
you know, it goes back to your point about faith at the beginning, and this does seem to be at the crux of it. Do you remember their first argument, Maggie and Samras, is about the prayer mat? And Marjorie, too, begins to see London differently. He had once told Samra that this country chips away at one's faith, but then he begins to see that it chips away indiscriminately at all faith, even faith itself. And he sees the poverty, the begging and the shamefulness of the poverty, which he hadn't seen before, interestingly. There's also a long list of the kind of things that Samra likes, which includes things like tablets, jars and chewing gum and a sense of the emptiness of them. So do you think it's suggested that in the West, consumerism has replaced faith? That passage really stood out for me too, but for slightly different reasons. I felt, um, as I say, this slight mismatch with Majdi's vision of England, which sometimes strikes me as a very religious place compared to, well, say, France, where we have this tradition of secularism. And this got me thinking about what Majdi was looking for when he left Sudan. It seems to be from a relatively privileged family, at least in the sense of being well-educated, and his faith is, is very much his business. He speaks of how intimate and vulnerable he feels when discussing faith. And consumerism may come into it, but I think Abu Leila did a magnificent job of showing the full complexity of what happens when we move to reach for something and the interplay with individual character. Samra is under different constraints and she makes different choices, but she holds very strongly to her faith. And Majdi sees at the end how much Samra's faith nourished him, even though he rejected it. Yes, I mean, I think that's true. And I just want to go back to that point about England being a more religious country than France. So from my perspective, England is much more secular than it used to be. So we don't have uh, as many religious school assemblies anymore. I always grew up with a religious school assembly and congregations everywhere are really dwindling. But I must say that I spent a little time in Saudi Arabia and Obviously, I was an outsider there, but I was very powerfully aware of the the faith, the religious context there, the constant calls to prayer, for instance. Mm. But I did like the fact that we see that the West does not hold out endless opportunities for Samra because that neatly deconstructs the usual Western myth about women, that the West is better for women. And I also felt that there was a really good scene between the woman who teaches Samra when she does finally go on the word processing course. And this woman has been to Tunisia for her holidays and feels that she can talk with some authority about how Samra must feel about war and famine and the Sudan in general. And Samra is obviously outraged by this and she won't go back to the class. Yeah, that was a brilliant scene. Yeah. I wonder if, if to some extent this is a story about distance, um, the choice for, for immigrants and emigrants to hold on or to let go, always negotiating the distance between them and others or other aspects of themselves and their various homes. Uh, Majdi first observes Samra from afar. In particular, there's the scene where he watches her running from the demonstration and then she freshens up. He's at a physical distance. And the narration is from a distance of time or reminiscence also. And then there's an emotional distance because he's isolated by his own cynicism at her political engagement. And he lets her go unapproached, just as he later lets her go back to Sudan, where he stays in London. The emotional climax when Samra's distress is revealed through Majdi's point of view um, is also narrated in second person. So we become this oddly impersonal voice describing the scene of Samra in an almost catatonic state on her bed. 
And the effect is perhaps to jolt us into feeling. So it works like an estrangement technique. And the story itself is set some years back. So I suppose we're all immigrants in this space that's no longer ours. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about the distance. And Abu Layla's life seems to encompass several countries. And again, maybe there is always a difficulty in deciding on the narration if you're presenting a tension between two cultures, the narrative voice is going to become more complex. I found it interesting that neither of these main protagonists have given a first person narration, although it does come close to that in the two paragraphs that describe their different views of cartoon. Here the narration moves from the external to the internal, and as you say, throughout the story presents a number of points of view. Marjorie's mother, for instance, is an important character, vividly presented, but also I felt representative of a certain kind of Sudanese mother, perhaps. Mm, you, you felt that she was a type? I mean, I felt she was representative. I think it's possible to be both characterised and to represent a certain type of, say, you know, we get that sometimes with a Jewish mother in fiction. Interesting that Abu Layla's own mother was Egyptian, apparently, and an academic, so very different from the mother in this story. So what do you feel we can learn from this story and from Abu Layla's style? But I felt that I was being asked to hold several viewpoints, so to shelve a tendency towards binary thinking and to hold uh, this and that, not this or that in mind. Mm. Um, this is maybe familiar to many people who travel cultures. It's something I've often noticed among biculturals. Mm. I think there's an essay about this by Zadie Smith. I'll look up the, the name and we can include that in the references. Uh, she talks about bothness as a way of being. Uh, there's a lot of delicate direction from Abu Leila, paraphrasing and subtle exposition. I love the way she used the word naturally to say that Majdi was the first man in Samra's life. And it mm. seemed to reflect both simultaneous insider and outsider positioning. I felt that I had to listen without judgment to certain things that I wasn't sure how to interpret, such as the gap between Majdi's academic success in Sudan and his struggle to keep up in the UK. I wasn't sure if this was due to difference in academic requirements between school and university or the academic level between two countries or just the stress faced by any university student. Yes, that's right. This gap isn't explained, so the reader has to fill it in. The management of narratorial distance was masterful, so that's something I tried to learn from this story. There's that slightly distant observation and the shifty positioning of the narratorial voice with recurrent shifts and periodic zooms in and out. And there's that scene where we see Samra's distress, which seems so much more powerful from being seen at a, at a distance through Majdi's eyes. And that sudden shift to second person, which seems to make it also more personal and more direct. So what would you flag up for learning, Livy? How would you write a story like this one? I think there is a lot to learn from it if you want to write a story that shifts between perspectives, whether cultural or generational, political or based on class or gender. As you say, there's a lot of delicate steering from the narrator, but also the use of register and idiolect is really important. The two protagonists grow further apart and this is reflected in their internal language, their separate visions of how things could be. It's really a tragic love story, though delivered with a light touch and without sentiment or cliché. It says a lot about the impact of culture on relationships while remaining particularised in the use of detail, the chewing gum, the curl of Samra's hair, etc. 
and so it's very moving and convincing you would have to hold both perspectives in an equal light as it were and pay attention to the subtleties of difference it was wonderful to feel that you were individuals in all their singularity and nuance it's so beautifully and delicately rendered with with understanding and insight absolutely that's part of what makes the story so rich and complex and i hope we've done it some justice so once again, we've been discussing Missing Out by Leila Abu Leila, which is available online via Branta magazine. Thank you for listening to this Small Pleasures podcast and do keep your eyes and ears open for our next one. Watch this space. We have many great short stories to cover. Until then, goodbye from me and Sonia. A très bientôt.